0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Roussas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scripture. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it. To every area of your life and thought. Box Theology, Chalcedon Position Paper, Number 39 In the Presidential Address to the Economic History Association, September 12, 1980, Richard A. Easterlin commented on the fact that the modern era began with the rejection of the medieval church and, one can add, Christianity, and, quote, Humanity ultimately took up a new religion of knowledge, whose churches are the schools and universities of the world, whose priests are its teachers, and whose creed is belief in science and the power of rational inquiry, and in the ultimate capacity of humanity to shape its own destiny." The Journal of Economic History, Volume 41, Number 1, March 1981, Page 17. We can add that the great agency of this new religion is the modern humanistic state. If a religion is not Catholic, universal in its faith, jurisdiction, and scope, it will quickly fail. Religion by its very nature either speaks to all of life, or it in time speaks to none. Man, by his nature, has boundaries to his life and activities. They are inescapable for man. There are boundaries to my property, my abilities, and my authority. By definition, no god nor religion can have boundaries and limitations to its sway without self-destruction. A god is either sovereign and total in his jurisdiction, or else he is soon no god at all. Something else bests him and replaces him. All the false gods of history until recently were false gods because the men who made them also placed limits upon them. This was especially clear with the gods of Rome. They were created by men, the Roman Senate specifically, and hence men always had priority over the gods. The gods in time became more and more obviously tools and a department of state for the Roman Empire which claimed Catholic or universal sway and sovereignty for itself. In the modern world, The humanistic state claims this sovereignty. It is the modern God walking upon earth. The modern state claims sovereignty and Catholicity. The United Nations is the attempt of humanistic statism to attain true and full universality and Catholicity. Meanwhile, the Christian Church is busily departing from the doctrine of God's sovereignty and His necessary Catholic jurisdiction. Christianity is increasingly limited to a, quote, spiritual, unquote, realm, of which it now concedes vast areas to psychology and psychiatry, and the rest of the world is granted to the state. The result is box theology. To understand what box theology is, let us compare the universe to the Empire State Building, a great, modern, skyscraper office building. In Bach's theology, the Church claims one small office among hundreds for Christianity. All the rest of the building is given over to the jurisdiction of the state and the sciences. One area after another is deemed non-religious and is surrendered. This is done despite the fact that God is the creator and Lord of the whole universe and therefore has total and absolute jurisdiction over all things. God's law word, jurisdiction, and authority must govern all things. All things were made by him, and without him were not anything made that was made. Unquote. John 1.3. The jurisdiction of the church is a limited one, but the jurisdiction of the triune God, of Christ our King, and of the Bible, God's law word, cannot be limited. Every area of life and thought must be under the dominion of the Lord. He alone is truly sovereign. To limit the jurisdiction of Christ is to posit a limited God, one who cannot survive because a limited God is a contradiction and is no God at all. If God is God, if He truly is the Lord or Sovereign, everything must serve Him and be under His dominion, the state, schools, arts, sciences, the church, and all things else. To limit the jurisdiction of the God of Scripture to the soul of man and to the church is to deny him a limited god cannot save man because he is not in control of all things what he does today can be undone tomorrow and his quote salvation unquote is at best temporary Bach's theology limits the church moreover and destroys it if the church and its word is limited to return to our image to one room and none other in the Empire State Building, then its only legitimate area of concern is the church, and to a degree, the soul of man. There can then be no dealing with the problems of the age, because they lie outside the jurisdiction of the church. The results are both deplorable and revolting. The quote, world unquote, of the church is then no larger than the church. It is boxed into its narrow little room, all its battles then are waged within that quote, "world" unquote, the church this means that the world of the church in box theology becomes a realm of continual civil war protestants and catholics against one another armenians and calvinists in opposition to one another and so on this does not mean that the issues between these groups are inconsequential it does mean that subordinate issues are made the only ones the crown rights of Christ our King over the whole world are then neglected or forgotten. The necessity of bringing politics, economics, the arts and sciences, education, the family, all peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations under the dominion of Christ the Lord is truncated or short-circuited. Bach's theology believes it is strict because it is narrow in its scope. Whereas a true strictness claims all things for Christ the King, this false strictness leads into Pharisaism and to censoriousness. One such pathetic little group of box theology advocates rails at all other Christians in issue after issue. One recent publication actually declared that John Whitehead quote, scorns the cross unquote, because he disagrees with their view and held that I believe in the Inquisition arriving at this by a wild misreading of one of my books. These are the pathetic dead, reveling in their narrow coffin box. Box theology men battle against their fellow Christians continually, while the world claims more and more of Christ's realm. Because box theology allows the state to be sovereign or lord, it offers no resistance to status controls. As a result, In state after state where attempts to control the church are in process, many advocates of box theology insist on surrender to the state, and sometimes go to court to witness for the state against the resisting churches. Box theology is implicit polytheism. It says, in effect, that there is one God over the church, but other gods over every other realm, or else, that all realms other than the church are neutral realms, these, quote, neutral, unquote, realms are not under the mandate of Scripture, but are free to follow the dictates of natural, fallen, reason, wherever it leads them. The idea of neutrality is, of course, a myth. If the God of Scripture is the true and living God, there can be no realm of neutral facts and neutral jurisdiction. All things are under God's sovereignty and law, and nothing can exist apart from Him nor can any law be valid other than His law. To claim neutrality for any realm is to deny that God created it, and to posit neutrality is to cease to be a Christian. Because God is God, His jurisdiction is total, and His sovereignty absolute and indivisible. No human institution, neither church nor state, can claim any jurisdiction beyond its limited sphere. Thus, while the church has a limited sphere of authority under God, the word it must proclaim is the word of the total God for the totality of life and thought. The word proclaimed by the church cannot be limited to the church because, if it is scripture, it is not the word of the church, but the word of God. The word judges all things, governs all things, and offers hope in Christ to all men in all areas of life. Box theology is dead theology, with a God too small to speak to anything more than the church. Box theology is dead theology, with a God too small to speak to anything more than the church. In its own way, box theology proclaims the death of God, because a limited God ceases to be God. The forces of humanistic statism have advanced only through default. Churchmen have retreated from and abandoned one area after another to the humanist, and many continue to retreat. Sigmund Freud saw the inner world of man as the last domain of biblical religion. All other spheres had been captured. By converting psychology, the word concerning the soul, from a theological to a scientific discipline, and guilt from a theological fact to a scientific concern. Fraud hoped to make religion totally irrelevant. C.R.J. Rushtuni, Fraud. Even more than fraud, the pietists have been remarkable in their enforced limitations upon biblical faith. Ironically, the bankruptcy of humanism has increased as its sway and power have been broadened. When the Enlightenment triumphed over the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, it brought into sharp focus a development of which had previously marked the Renaissance era, the rift between classes. There had previously been very serious problems between the rich and the poor, but the fact of a common faith and a common life in the church had provided a bond and a basis for community, a hope for the potential solution to problems. Christian faith had stressed the necessary harmony of interest. With the Enlightenment, the common faith gave way to a widening gulf and to hostilities. Leon Gorefield, in the House of Hanover, 1976, called attention to the fact that, with the first Hanover ruler in England, the first riot act was passed. The foreign king, George I, was a fitting symbol of the fact that rulers and the people were now foreigners one to another. The people, said Garfield, were prone to rioting. Silk weavers, coal heavers, sailors, powdered footmen, gay old birds, and ex-soldiers all were rioting. Ex-soldiers from Marlborough's foreign wars turned highwaymen, and the modern age came with the affirmation of reason, and with riots. The number of offenses which received the death penalty grew steadily, but so too did crime. Today, too, we have many who believe that stricter laws and penalties will solve the problem of crime. But they did not then, nor will they now. All such men have their own version of box theology or box philosophy. Hanging children for stealing a loaf of bread did not stop crime or juvenile delinquency in 18th century England. The evangelical awakening, a partial return of Puritanism, did much to alter the situation. Moreover, Law and order have various meanings in the Soviet Union, Red China, Sweden, and the United States, but they are all variations of humanism. Only biblical law and order coupled with the regenerating power of Jesus Christ can alter a society. Ultimately, any faith which does not have the triune God of Scripture and Jesus Christ as its Alpha and Omega is a box philosophy or theology. And this is clearly true of our new imitation Catholicism, the modern humanistic state. However totalitarian its claims, its faith fails to be universal or true, because it boxes itself in, to insulate itself from God and His law word. It is thus dead to life and to truth, and it is doomed to collapse and the grave. The law of the modern state is the law of death. In both the United States and Canada, for example, pornography trials have as their premise quote, community standards, unquote. Whether it be adult or child pornography, the legal test of its legality is the community standard. This is the legal enactment of Genesis 3, 5, every man as his own God, knowing or determining for himself what is good and evil. Such a quote, community standard, unquote, as law means that if the community favors abortion, theft, murder, rape, or incest, these things can become legal. A box theology or a philosophy is finally no bigger than man, whether man's pietism or man's sin, but in any case it is no bigger than man. God's sentence upon it is the sentence already pronounced on all the sons of Adam, and upon all their institutions, philosophies and theologies death there is no escaping the sentence apart from jesus christ who is the lord or sovereign over all men and all creation to acknowledge jesus christ as lord is to bring ourselves our every thought every action and word all spheres of life and all institutions under his jurisdiction and law word box theologies and philosophies are finally allotted a narrow box by God. Its name is hell. The glorious liberty of the sons of God is to be a new creation in and through Jesus Christ, to work for the fullness of that new creation and to dwell therein eternally in the great consummation by Him who makes all things new. April, 1983 The Law, the State, and the People Chalcedon Position Paper Number 40 The nature and the meaning of law have changed from one culture to another. First of all, all law is religious in its presuppositions because it is an expression of basic and ultimate values. Laws protect those values most important to a society and prescribe those regarded as alien and evil. Every legal system embodies a concept of ultimate concern, of religion and ethics. Second, laws... Beside protecting values, also protect men. The men protected in contemporary states can be, theoretically, all men within the society, the state and its agents, or one class of men, such as the proletariat. It is not our concern at the moment whether or not the protection is theoretical or actual. In antiquity, the law was commonly royal law. Even more, it was often the law of an ostensibly divine human king whose word was law. In some sense, the law is always partial. It protects those whom the law deems just and prosecutes those suspected of injustice. Where the partiality of the law is determined by men, all who differ from the lawmakers can be judged, illicit, and criminal. There is thus no freedom for capitalists in the Soviet Union, and there are limitations at times on the freedom of communists in some democracies. Where laws come from men, men will determine the limits of the law's protection. The law thus always has an interest. Law protects and punishes in terms of pre-theoretical presuppositions, which are in essence religious. The important question to ask of law is the nature of its interest or concern. The interest can be royal, democratic, fascist, racist, and so on. In every case, it is an expression of values. Historically, law, which we like to see as the expression of justice, has been very commonly seen as injustice. The royal law in India for centuries was exploitive of the peoples and seen as oppressive. One aging missionary who had a contact with elderly Chinese who had seen the rules of the empress, the republic, unquote, and the communists asked them about the difference from one regime to another as they affected them, the peasants. Their answer was that all things were essentially the same. Quote, all masters want their will and our work, Unquote. The repetitions of the law like to see it as equivalent to justice. During most of history, men have seen it as the oppressive will of the masters. Ancient Israel was an exception to this. Lawmaking was recognized in times of faithfulness as God's prerogative, not man's, and God had revealed His covenant law through Moses. This law was defended and expounded by the prophets, and it was binding for the king and the people. Nathan's indictment of King David, one of a long series of such confrontations, was without parallel in antiquity a law beyond man and from God judged both kings and peoples, indeed all men and nations. For our purposes here, a few limited aspects of biblical law must be noted. First, every system of law imposes certain restraints on some of the freedom of others. Outside of biblical law, these restraints are on one segment of men for the freedom of another, sometimes only a few. In Plato's Republic, the free are very few. They are the philosopher kings. In other systems, other elites are free and the rest restrained. Second, not only is freedom in a social order selective, but it is also both positive and negative. Thus, in Soviet Russia, there is a freedom from capitalism and a freedom for the state to control its citizenry. A man who exercises the freedom to sin thereby ensures freedom from virtue and its many blessings. No stand or act has a single consequence. We are at all times in a nexus of events, past, present, and future. Biblical law gives us freedom from men and from the state, but not from God. The social order created by biblical law distrusts man as a sinner and thus minimizes his controls while stressing his responsibility. This means, third, that biblical law leads to a minimal state. The king or judge in Israel had less power than is now routine for the higher officials of state bureaucracies. The stress of biblical law is on man's responsibility to God and to his fellow men under God. Man must distrust himself, his fellow men, and his rulers. In Isaiah's words, quote, See ye from man, whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of unquote. isaiah two twenty two power and authority are not to be accorded to men apart from God's word and law at the same time we are commanded to remember always that quote, we are members one of another unquote. ephesians four twenty five Much more can be said of biblical law, but for our present purposes this suffices with the progressive conversion of the western world to christ the canon of society and the states become god's law word so that a new element was introduced into the life of the law rome early saw the far-reaching implications of christianity and therefore resisted it two rival doctrines of sovereignty and law were at war one with another the sovereignty of god and his law Versus the sovereignty of man, the state, and man-made law. From the days of Rome to the present, history has been witness to this continuing battle. In any system of thought, the sovereign is the lawmaker and thus de facto God. Sovereignty or lordship and lawmaking are inseparable. The power to make laws is a manifestation of ultimacy and sovereignty in a society and over a society. It is a religious fact, and it manifests the God of that system. Because of this, the conflict of Christianity with various forces, most notably the state, has been a continuing fact of Western history. The periodic prevalence of the Christian perspective has meant the freeing of man from status controls. It has also meant that Western history has been marked by a freedom unknown to other areas of the world, and the result has been a vitality in the West of unequaled dimensions. Instead of a monolithic society dominated by a monolithic state, we have seen both conflict and freedom. However faulty the Christian community has usually been, its presence has been productive of social energies and progress unequaled in all of history. Any study of the history of the West which is separated from theology is an exercise in evasion and futility. To chronicle events is not to understand history. As a result of this Christian factor, the interest of a social order is a divided one. It is popular now with statists to speak of the state interest and to equate it with the public interest. This identification was basic to ancient tyrannies and is now a commonplace with our newer ones. Its modern origins are in Jean-Jacques Rousseau who identified the state as the voice of the people's general will. This identification has made possible the tyrannies of modern Marxism and National Socialism. Rousseau held that the public, quote, must be taught to know what it is that it wills, unquote. In the social contract, Rousseau held that while the will of the people may not correspond to the general will, quote, The general will is always right and tends always to the public good, but it does not follow that the deliberations of the people always have the same rectitude. There is often a great difference between the will of all and the general will. This identification of the true will of the people as the general will and the general will with the state led to a revival of the ancient pagan state. After Hegel, the state was indeed a god walking on earth. The French Revolution began the the idealization of the state to a degree previously unknown in the Western world. It also rationalized tyranny in the name of the people. The recognition that the public interest and the state interest could be very different, had grown slowly and steadily. Now, with the secularization of society and the idealization of the state, that distinction began to be set aside. In the English-speaking world, that distinction had become especially strong. A long tradition of courageous men defended the public interest against the powers of the crown. Step by step, that distinction was stressed and expanded the unlimited powers of crown commissions were checked, and the areas of freedom expanded. The statement of James Otis in New England that a man's house is his castle was in this tradition, which goes back to the Middle Ages. Thomas Becket, the Magna Carta, and more. The papacy had a role in this, a major one. In challenging the controls various monarchs sought to place on the church, Freedom was a long battle, or rather, a war with many battles, some still to be fought. We must now turn to a key factor in all of this. As we have seen, this Christian development led slowly to a recognition of the difference between the state interest and the public interest. David's indictment by the prophet Nathan is an important example of this in Old Testament history. European English and American histories give us Many more examples of this. The fact which made possible the differentiation and more was law. God's law. Unlike all other laws, God's law was not identified with any class, race, or people. It judged the Hebrews and later the Jews even more harshly than other peoples, so that it gave them no exemptions and was emphatic about precluding this. God's law is not identified with the state interest nor with the public interest. It stresses their differences, but it does not favor either. Rather, the law of God speaks from beyond history to judge and govern all within history. In Second Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan says to David, quote, Thou art the man, unquote, and then pronounces God's judgment upon him. God's law judges both the public interest and the private interest because it transcends both. All man-made laws reflect a particular human interest. At this point, humanistic legal theories and systems have been vulnerable to the Marxist critique. According to Marxism, laws are not objective systems of transcendental truth, but class products. As class products, the legal systems defend their creating and, and sponsoring class. Accepting this premise, Marxists hold that the workers must be the dominant and controlling class, and the laws must reflect their class interest. Here too, however, an elite group expresses the supposed will of the people, but not with the consent of the people or workers. Moreover, while Marxism has seen the partiality of the law, It has not solved the problem but has aggravated it by insisting on a rigid and total class partiality to replace the older limited one. As a result, it has replaced the mixed society with its frequent injustices with a totalitarian state dedicated to unremitting and total injustice. Clearly, the state is not God. It cannot escape on its humanistic premises confusing the state interest with the public interest, and from insisting that its will is the law. Because of this identification, there is a steady loss of religious freedom, and personal and family freedom. The loss in other realms, economic, educational, cultural, and so on, is also considerable. The state increasingly identifies its concerns with justice. In the United States, there is a steady movement by regulation and by law to enforce a quote, public social policy unquote, doctrine on all churches. This would give the federal government the power to regulate, control, or eliminate any kind and all groups whose stands conflict with quote, public policy. Unquote. Since quote, public policy unquote, currently favors such things, As homosexuality and abortion, this means that churches opposed to either have the option of surrendering their faith or submitting to the state on these and other issues. Such a trend spells the death of freedom. Whenever and wherever law has been seen as the voice of the people or the voice of the state, this totalitarian faith has prevailed. Either law is transcendental or it is the product of some human agency. If the law is the product of a human agency, it cannot judge that agency. When the state makes laws, it cannot be taken to court without its own consent, and then in its own courts. In every humanistic social order, justice becomes the will of the state, and freedom becomes a luxury reserved for the state and its agents. Because we are today witnessing the long consequences of a deeply entrenched departure from the transcendental nature of law, from God's law, we witness on all sides an attack on Christian liberty. At the same time, we see the rise of another kind of freedom, the freedom of slaves, the freedom of irresponsibility. What we often forget is that one of the worst factors in slavery has always been the intangible one. The DEMUNITION OF RESPONSIBILITY Nothing is more devastating to man and society. Abortion, the sexual revolution, homosexuality, and more, are all evidences of slave freedom, not responsible freedom. Those who despise God's law are thus railing against responsibility, justice, and responsible freedom. Freedom under God makes us members of, not lords over, one another. It delivers us from bondage into a calling under God. The law of God is justice. Man's lawmaking leads to injustice. The starting point of freedom and justice is Jesus Christ and His regenerating power. Quote, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Unquote. John eight thirty six 36, May 1983.
2: Thank you for joining
1: me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
2: It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Christ has set you free, set you free.